many organizations are driving efficiency, reducing information overload, and removing techno stress via their digital workplaces. And one way to achieve this is by providing a single and seamless and consistent experience that covers the plethora of applications that employees need to use every day. And this can be achieved using a digital experience layer. And a good way to think about such a layer is digital assistant that integrates with all enterprise systems, shields employees from the complexity, and delivers just that seamless experience that they expect. WorkGrid, of course, our podcast sponsor, is one of the organizations that explores the possibilities and shares some really great insights via an article they've just published called Evolution of the Digital Workplace, Our Digital Experience Layers of the Next Frontier. Be sure to check it out. You'll find the link in the show notes. And of course, you can learn more about how to keep your workforce engaged and be more productive via that article. But for now, let's go on to our episode. Be remiss of me not to point out that, you know, we need to make sure that organizations have very high levels of maturity when it comes to their digital workplaces and the sort of employee experience that they're able to offer. If you've got a low-performing set of services, then allowing your employees to go work wherever they like might not necessarily result in the outcomes that you're looking for. So I think there is an emphasis on making sure that you've got higher levels of maturity that enable you to sort of maximize these kinds of policies to full effect. Today, I had the pleasure of chatting with fellow DWGer Ed Taylor. Ed is DWG's executive director responsible for DWG's global expansion across membership benchmarking and consulting. And he also heads up the DWG Institute, which brings together organizations, technology providers, and experts to share knowledge, ideas, and perspectives in a confidential space in a way to significantly improve and reimagine the way we work today and in the future. Later this month, Ed will be participating in a panel discussion at Unite 21, which is produced by Unily. And as part of that conversation, Ed will introduce what he's dubbed his crazy ideas for the future of work. Not only did we have a chance to explore what inspired him, of course, we talked through each of the seven ideas, but we also had a chance to work through some advice for digital workplace leaders and practitioners in light of these ideas. Among the themes that Ed shared during today's conversation included his thinking about workforce diversity, compensation shifts, expanding talent pools, work-life integration, shifting lifestyles, and workweek flexibility. Join me now for a fascinating conversation with DWG's own Ed Taylor. Happy listening. So, Ed, this is your first time in the Digital Workplace Impact Studio. I am just so excited to have you here. Of course, we work together very closely day to day, but this is a first for us. It is. I'm very excited to be here. Uh, I've been with uh, with DWG for seven years now, so I guess it's sort of a natural progression to get involved in the podcast at some time. <laughs> for sure. And of course, it's relatively new for me, so it continues to be 
and exciting exploration. And sometimes that's in conversation with DWG experts across the team. And it just felt quite natural to bring you into the studio next, um, especially because you're often working behind closed doors with DWG members and clients. And so I think it's fitting to start with uh, an opening question to ask you to tell our listeners a little bit about your leadership role inside of DWG for just that reason. Absolutely. So my role is quite an interesting one at DWG. I'm an executive director, and that means that I get to cover lots of different parts of the business. Uh, primarily, I'm helping support our existing members uh, shape their digital strategies and roadmaps and governance through a variety of consulting engagements. I'm also helping to grow our membership base across our main markets in North America and Europe. And then a sort of relatively new sort of aspect of my role is helping to lead the DWG Institute, which is our public facing channel uh, that's really designed to help bring technology providers closer together to digital workplace practitioners so that they can get a better understanding of the landscape and, and new technologies that are coming to the fore that might be of interest to them. So from my perspective, I, I view my job as being very rewarding. It gives me a perspective into lots of different areas, and I get to talk to a variety of different practitioners uh, from many different backgrounds and sectors. So it certainly keeps me on my toes, uh, and I'm very, looking, look, very much looking forward to uh, sharing some of those insights today. Well, I think that's the perfect place for us to dive into conversation. I think because you have this unique vantage view working across members, consulting clients, institute partners, and of course, tapping our wider industry circles, that gives you a very unique perspective on what's going on and hopefully a little bit of a crystal ball into what's coming next. So tell me specifically about what is bringing you into the studio today. Well, if I recall collect correctly, we're actually having a, a leadership meeting within the team at DWG, uh, yourself included, and we were discussing sort of the future of work in the light of the pandemic. And I think we we're sort of throwing around uh, some slightly more sort of crazy, on the edge sort of ideas. Uh, and I think someone called me out. Really, I think it was Paul who suggested that I ought to come on the podcast and have a have a conversation about them, explore them in a bit more detail, and it also complements uh, a speaking engagement that I've got coming up with uh, the team at Unily, who are one of our institute partners, where I'll be speaking at their Unite Twenty One event uh, that takes place towards the end of September. So, if you like the sound of this podcast, do feel free to join for the the Unily event, and you can see me uh, talk on a panel session. Uh, on a similar topic as well, which is all around sort of the future of work and sort of taking stock of uh, the impact of the pandemic and how we move forwards from there. Fantastic. So tell us about these crazy ideas that have emerged. Yeah, well, I think obviously these ideas have come about following the COVID pandemic, uh, which clearly was probably one of the most significant events that's certainly taken place in my lifetime. Uh, the scale's been unprecedented. I actually actually looked in today uh, that 4.5 million people had sadly lost their lives as a result of COVID. So if anybody's uh, been impacted by that, I, I do feel deeply sad about the, the sort of effects that it's had. But what's, what's interesting is from, from the tragedy that COVID has, has sort of brought on, on many people, uh, it really has given us an opportunity in my mind to sort of see, particularly for digital workplace practitioners, where we can go from here. 
And I was very sort of taken by a comment that our CEO, Paul Miller, said to me at the very start of uh, the sort of COVID pa- pandemic was that the future had come early. And I think what Paul was really alluding to was the fact that COVID had, had had sort of an, an accelerative effect on remote working and really forced enterprises into providing the necessary services to enable you know tens of thousands of people to start working remotely. And obviously at DWG, with our near 70 member organisations uh, that we work with, we get a unique perspective into how they approach those challenges. And what's quite interesting with the time that we are now, where we're at now, is that we're about uh, 18 months from the first UK lockdown where Boris Johnson issued his uh, stay-at-home message. And I think everyone, including myself and my family, went into sort of quite a high degree of panic, uh, buying up loo roll and all the rest of it. And that was on the 23rd of March. This week, also in the UK, this is the first full work, full working week where everyone's gone back to, uh, all the children have gone back to school and everyone's now trying to get back to normal. And I think we've been able to sort of take stock of the, over those last 18 months as to what have we really observed from the different organisations that, that we get to work with. I think one of the key things to come out of it is that workers can be trusted to get on with their jobs. And in many, many cases have worked longer hours, they've been more productive. I think leadership with inside you know, larger organisations that we work with, and I'm sure some of the smaller organisations have done exactly the same, is that they've been able to demonstrate a much higher level of empathy towards their workforce than, than before because of the circumstances that everyone's been working through. I think we've demonstrated, excuse me, that we've demonstrated the technology's been working very, very well, irrespective of whether or not you've been using Teams, WebEx or Zoom. A myriad of different tools have really helped us to to keep the job going and getting things done. I think we've also benefited, certainly from our immediate families, we've been able to spend more time with each other uh, as a result of lockdown. And obviously, as we've moved further away from sort of the more government-prescribed controls, uh, we've had a lot more flexibility in the way that we go about our lives. From some of the conversations I've had, I've, I've spoken to people who've managed to get new jobs whilst the lockdown's been happening uh, and they felt that they've been able to interact with colleagues in maybe not a perfect way, but they've been able to sort of get onboarded into those organisations in an effective manner. And it's definitely something that we've observed that HR technology is making huge progress in helping to support people start new jobs. Another area that we sort of observed is that we were definitely certain that the office is going to be a different place when everyone does start going back to the office on a more regular basis definitely going to be seeing a higher increase of open spaces where people can meet and network with their colleagues, sort of try and instigate more of those water cooler interactions. Uh, There's definitely a need for the sort of continuation of mentoring uh, with newer employees coming into the organisation, learning from their older counterparts who've got more experience. And I think ultimately what we've seen from all of that is that people want more flexibility to choose when they're in the office. I think everybody would be in agreement that COVID-19 has certainly ushered in hybrid working and that's here to stay. And I think the enterprises are now trying to find the right balance for their workers 
between the time in the office and the time that they spend working from home, and they've identified, you know, range of benefits that might include, you know, cost cost savings because they've got smaller office footprints. They're probably having better retention of staff because they've got to improve work life balance because of the, the hybrid working. Obviously, people have reduced their commuting times, which was pre pre working for DWG. I used to have to commute into central London, and it was certainly a, a part of my job that I didn't particularly enjoy. There's definitely been an increase in productivity because of that, arguably. Access to a larger and more diverse workforce is certainly a potential with hybrid working. Uh, we no longer have to sort of target people that are within an hour of a particular location. We can now cast our net further. So from a, a talent attraction perspective, that's a big win. And I think going back to that point about the office, uh, with people sort of reducing their office footprints, there's also an opportunity to invest in, in sort of smarter and sort of more environmentally friendly office locations. And then I've sort of been obviously reading up on a lot of information that's been published as people comment on the on the sort of COVID uh, situation and sort of hybrid working in general. And I think what we've seen is a real profound shift now in the relationship between employers and employees. I read an interesting report where there's been a real trend in, in sort of hiring new staff where pre-COVID when people are offered a job, they'd be told, right, you're going to be working in this office location, you're going to be working for this number of hours, you're going to be working on this salary. And that would be that. But nowadays, from what I've been reading, is that uh, – more candidates are asking slightly trickier questions about, you know, how much flexibility have I got? What facilities have we got at the office? Do I get free gym membership? Is the food free? Et cetera, et cetera. So I think as we emerge from the crisis, people are beginning to sort of appraise their work-life balance with a much higher degree of scrutiny. And I think that we're sort of at that sort of tipping point now where sort of hybrid working is going to become very much the norm, certainly over the next sort of two or three years as that beds in. And I guess the thrust of this particular podcast is very much around where do we see ourselves in the next five years once we've sort of got on top of hybrid working? Well, Ed, I think you've pulled together some really interesting insights um, to which I would add that... I think there's going to be a new brand of leadership that's required, one that hinges on a wider view of agile thinking, because I know many of us have talked about the fact that, you know, the one constant is change, but now we have change with speed and direction. So the idea of velocity is now in play and organizations, as well as the people within um, at all levels, need to be able to pivot as new circumstances unfold. And so that can be leadership at an individual level or or leadership at a senior level um, within organizations that, that requires that ability to shift, um, whether it's mindsets, location, or work that needs to happen to match those circumstances, whether it's as new variants come up, or as as you well know, um, parts of the U.S. were hit quite hard um, in the wake of Ida, and suddenly, you know, schools in New Jersey, as an example, are are pivoting back to online learning, in some cases because of um, flooding and infrastructure issues, and so that's just the way of life now. That the the infrastructure, the foundation, the mindset, is now in play. 
And so I would add to that the idea that everyone's ambiguity tolerance has had to find a new baseline as well. And being able to adapt to those circumstances with the combination of those new skill sets is really critically important. Absolutely. And I, I completely recognize uh, the point that you just made. And I think it's an important one from an enterprise standpoint is that there's no guarantees that this might not happen again. You know, in, in the uh, just listening to the news when I was taking my children to school this morning, uh, there was a possibility that the UK might have to go into some form of rolling lockdown at a more geographic level uh, to help manage the, the likelihood of increases in COVID instances into the autumn and sort of winter months. And so from a from an organisational standpoint, there does need to be you know countermeasures that can be spun into action and sort of, I guess, that helps perpetuate the need to have you know, a very well thought out approach to hybrid and flexible working so that it doesn't impede your employees' ability to do their jobs if they're not if they're not actually directly impacted with, with picking up COVID. And I guess the threat of uh, another variant coming along is something that we're all going to have to live with uh, over the sort of years to come. Uh, and it, it, that will create a profound change in how we go about our lives. You know, I think just at a general level, people in the UK certainly haven't travelled as far as they would have liked to have done for their summer holidays. And I think there will be more trends that sort of follow in that in that vein well into the future. I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, I think the other thing that comes to mind for me in reaction to um, sort of the, the future of work ideas that you've put forward is really that there has been a fundamental shift from people aiming for work-life balance to one that requires work-life integration uh, because so many more people are working from home or co-working spaces and, and need to be able to balance that uh, dynamic nature of things, um, as we've just described, um, as well as shifting circumstances. Absolutely. I mean, just, just sort of moving into some of the ideas that I've come come up with. Uh, and these ideas, as I said earlier, are very much about thinking, well, where do we move onwards from, from hybrid working? What's the sort of evolution of the way people people work? And I think, as you say, people are wanting to strive towards a better a better work-life balance. And I, I, I'm definitely not in the minority when I was sort of suggesting that uh, I didn't didn't particularly enjoy my commute sort of trekking across London. I felt that that was a quite a significant waste of my time and I could be more effective. So sort of looking into some of the ideas that I've, I've started sort of identifying uh, over the last few months, let's just dive in with a few of them, shall we? Yes, let's. Okay, so I, I'm sort of quite intrigued about this concept of sort of work anywhere policies. So do, you, do, you, do we think for sort of general organisations, you know, can we envisage a scenario where an employee would be an, allowed to work, say, and this was an example that Paul, Paul sort of floated out there, no pun intended, about sailing around the world. You know, could we have an employee who's on a boat doing their job and happening to be in the world, on a boat somewhere in the world? Could we have a situation where, you know, I'm a very passionate uh, snowboarder, so could I go work in a ski resort for a few months? Uh, so I guess it's just about trying to sort of flex this sort of concept of ultimate flexibility in how people go about their work. And you might think that this is sort of the preserve of, of young people or people without the responsibility of children. 
But, you know, given that I actually totted up the number of weeks that my daughter who started school last week is going to get, she gets over 15 weeks worth of holiday throughout the year. And I was sort of thinking to myself, well, wouldn't it be great if we could you know, rent somewhere in a different country and my wife and I could take it in terms to work flexibly while, while she potentially learns a new language or immerses herself in, in other ways. So I think I'd like to think the sort of concept of work anywhere is something that could start to become a bit more popular uh, and certainly to reflect the fact that you know, both my wife and I work full-time jobs and sort of having two children is, is quite a bit of a, a balancing act at the best of times. So maybe there's more that can be done in that space. Uh, and certainly, as I said, with the technology, where the technology is only going to get better. Uh, so I'd like to think that, that some employers would start to consider in certain circumstances that the work anywhere policy as a, as a possibility. What, what do you think? And I'll add another question. If you could work from anywhere... Where would you like to work from? <laughs> <laughs> I think you're turning the tables rather quickly yeah, there. <laughs> but but uh, I, I certainly have worked from uh, beachside locations in the recent past, and um, I have a real love for the mountains, so I'd probably head in that direction, starting with your second question first. And um, I think just hinging off of that um, earlier point around many people shifting from striving for work-life balance to work-life integration very much dovetails this notion of work anywhere policies. So I would say I'm very much in alignment with your thinking on that score. I think the challenge will be that there are some organizations that are still craving to get back to how things used to be. Um, and so, you know, the fundamental question will be whether those organizations go the way of um, buggy whip manufacturers of old yeah. um, versus um, adaptive organizations uh, which feel like they are poised for longer term success. And I, and I think it's important to recognize that there are certainly jobs out there that are, that are much more suited to sort of work anywhere. Uh, if you work in a highly regulated industry or you happen to work in a, in a in a role that requires you to be physically present in a certain location, then obviously that might not necessarily fit for you. Another another sort of area that I was sort of investigating that sounded quite fun was a, a, new, a new word that I got introduced to, which is called the pleasure trip, which is a conflation of, of business and leisure. So the idea with that is that, you know, we might have a business trip to, say, Madrid, and then I would put my hand up to say, you know, can I can I work in Madrid for a couple of weeks afterwards and work remotely from that particular location? So kind of an extension of the of the work anywhere policy and just sort of allowing people to have a bit more flexibility. That was just an interesting one. On a more serious point, and this is one that seems to be getting a bit more momentum, certainly in Europe, is this sort of the concept of, you know, is the is there a genuine possibility now that because we're sort of reducing people's commuting times a lot more. Can we, can we seriously start to consider a four-day working week? You know, in the UK, people on average work, I say on average, people are contracted to work 40 hours a week. So, you know, starting at 8 o'clock, finishing at half past five with a bit of time for lunch, you would, you would fulfil that criteria. I think that would be quite an interesting one to consider because potentially it would open up, you know, a larger employment uh, pool for, for, for the people as well if we were to reduce those hours down. Uh, but I think there's a, 
a balancing act that some employees might feel that if they are working from home for prolonged periods of time, they can be more productive, and therefore maybe they can maybe they can meet the obligations for their jobs in a shorter space of time. Uh, if I was an employer, though, I might flip it on its head and say, well, maybe if we paid you a bit more, you could work a bit longer. But there's going to be an interesting sort of negotiation around that. How, how, do, you, how do you feel about that one? So it's it's a trend that came up once upon a time when the notion of the digital workplace first came in, in vogue. And, um, you know, there was talk about the role of AI in reducing work overhead in organizations. Um, I think it's it's an idea that's having a rebirth at a more appropriate point in time in history. I think the big challenge there is that, again, leadership principles need to evolve in line with that um, as part of the set of critical success factors, but then also performance management and reward systems need to evolve in line with that as well. So I think that the systems need to shift in order for something like this to really um, breathe life into, you know, new ways of, of thinking about how work needs to shift going forward. I think so. I mean, if I, if I could make, if I could carve out an extra day, where the children are still at school and I can sort of focus on sort of looking after our house and, and other jobs and administrative tasks, that would be quite helpful. Uh, and that's someone who already works from home, <laughs> which, which is quite interesting. One thing I will float out just to, just to sort of give a perspective on the inner workings of DWG uh, that's probably quite relevant is that we're now moving into our, our second year of closing our office down uh, for all staff members. And we've, we've done this where we close the office for a whole week, usually in August, where it's one of the quieter months. And we've done that to, to huge success. And the idea was that everybody within inside the leadership team would take some time out. And the decision to do that was largely based on the fact that we wanted to do it where people were, they weren't all out of the office at different times over the course of the summer. So therefore slowing down our ability to make decisions over that sort of quieter period. So by getting everyone to go on holiday at the same time, we can sort of mitigate that and sort of uh, make sure our decision-making processes uh, aren't, aren't sort of slowed down over that period of time. And I'd, I'd be intrigued to see if uh, other organisations who are listening into the podcast would be in a position to maybe close down parts of their business at the same time and try to have holidays that are sort of coordinated uh, across teams for that for that particular reason. Uh, I'm not sure that would necessarily work for all organisations, but certainly for DWG, it's something that I think has worked really, really well for us as a, as a smaller organisation. And certainly the tech space has done that um, quite a lot over the years, um, whether it's you know an end of year closure between um, the year end holidays. Uh, and I can also think of a couple of DWG members in the tech space who had uh, a week of closure during the month of July. Um, so very niche to our industry. Um, I'd say DWG has always been very progressive vis-a-vis um, -vis, um, people policies. And, and this is um, yet another example. Um, and certainly want to challenge organizations to think differently, very much along the same lines of the quiet weeks that we've developed um, here on a rolling six-week basis as well, where we um, take all internal meetings off the calendar, client 
meetings progress as normal, member meetings progress as normal. Uh, but the idea is to give people a bit of relief from the meeting frenzy as well. So they've got deep thinking time, a topic that we had a chance to explore at um, a recent podcast episode with Isabel de Klerk, and that'll be coming out very shortly. And so, you know, this this whole idea of, you know, cultivating a breed of new leadership that allows for flexibility and creative thinking is the key takeaway in all of this. And then interpreting that to manage um, to the culture that you want your organization to have, as well as the circumstances that are in play is, is really the essence here, Ed. Absolutely. I'm going to move on to my sort of extreme sort of uh, working relation, working sort of approach now, which has actually been happening in Finland for quite some time, which is this concept of agile working. And I'm just going to read out a quote from the British Computer Society that says, agile working hours is basically empowering people to work where, when, and how they choose with maximum flexibility and minimum constraints to optimize their performance to do their best work. And so in practice, that would mean that, you know, in most cases, an employee would be expected to put in an average of 40 hours a week, but they could do this in any way and they would be free to sort of, uh, you know, if they want to spend time working from a coffee shop or they want to go work in a different country or they want to go and uh, do their some of their work at different hours to allow them to accommodate childcare or whatever it may be then that's okay or if you wanted to work more hours and effectively bank some of your time off for sort of longer breaks and that's another option as well uh, and I would be intrigued to see you know if if that's sort of a standard that we could look to sort of move towards I know that with my role at DWG, because it's a global role, I tend to find that, you know, just this evening I've got a call that will be starting at, at 8 p.m. Uh, after the children have gone to bed, which is fine for me because I know that I have the flexibility at DWG to maybe spend the time in the morning uh, doing a bike ride or something or getting some exercise in. And I think that's maybe something that we could start to move towards in, in the coming years of having that, that sort of higher level of responsibility to enable our workers to actually choose where, when and how they go about doing their work provided that their performance isn't diminished. What we want to do is optimise their performance ultimately. And I think that's quite an interesting uh, sort of area to look at. There are a few caveats attached to, to some of these ideas that I've talked about, uh, and I thought it might be useful just to sort of uh, bring everyone back to reality a little bit before we get too carried away with booking up uh, villas for, for the entirety of August. Uh, <laughs> and just try and bring people down to earth, not with a bump, but just sort of just create some guide rails around what we might need to think about for the future. I think it would be remiss of me not to point out that you know we need to make sure that organizations have very high levels of maturity when it comes to their digital workplaces and the sort of employee experience that they're able to offer if you've got a low performing uh, set of services then allowing your employees to go work wherever they like might not necessarily result in the outcomes that you're looking for so i think there is an emphasis on making sure that you've got higher levels of maturity that enable you to sort of maximize these kinds of policies to full effect. Uh, from a slightly more sort of uh, logistical perspective, people will need to be mindful of, of visas. 
you know, you can't just sort of turn up in certain parts of the world and expect to be able to work for periods of time. Uh, but there has certainly been a rise uh, in the concept of the digital nomad. And I noted that both Spain and Greece will be offering uh, sort of digital nomad visas in the not too distant future, which enables anybody to work for 12 months with inside Spain and Greece. Obviously, we've also all got to think about uh, the taxman. Depending on your nationality, uh, the taxman can reach much further afield. Uh, I think that might apply to people like yourself, Nancy, being US citizens. Uh, so it does. It is something that you need to factor into the mix. That if you are, you know, if you did want to go working abroad, you can't escape the taxman in certain situations. That might also have an impact on your employer as well. So sensible employers might sort of create some guidelines that say we're very happy for you to work in locations where we actually have a physical presence and have the necessary sort of tax criteria or eligibility in place uh, that enables their workers to work uh, from different locations. So I think there does need to be you know, a degree of pragmatism to some of these sorts of more uh, far-reaching ideas that I've been discussing. Uh, but nonetheless, it could, it could be quite interesting. And I, I certainly would... Uh, wouldn't need much encouragement to consider how I could work, you know, parts of January, for example, in a ski resort. That could be quite fun. Uh, maybe we'll do a follow-up podcast to see how that works out in practice. <laughs> that sounds like a, a good plan, Ed. And just two quick things in reaction, because I know you have a few other things you want to share with us. One is um, we actually have uh, a DWG colleague, Rose Miller, who's working out of Spain in in very much the mode that you've just described as a digital nomad. So I'm sure we'll have some great anecdotes um, from her as she comes off of that first time experience. She was due to come back on Saturday and has already extended her stay. So that speaks very positively to the experience that she's had there. That would be sort of anecdote number one. And then just to tie into your thinking around maturity, the other dimension that I would add to the mix is the emotional intelligence of the organization as a, you know a critical factor there as well, because there's a, a level that has to come into play in order for organizations to really be able to adapt in this space and think about policies um, and practices vis-a-vis -vis people and to promote the idea that the organization needs to be a learning organization to be able to adapt and reposition as new learnings come into play in this space as well. Absolutely. I must admit, I'm very jealous of Rose's trip to Spain. Uh, I saw the photographs <laughs> and it, it, did look, it did look rather good. <laughs> Very exciting indeed. So have we hit all of your crazy ideas or do we have any any final ones to to walk through? We have we have I've gone through all the, the ideas, but I think you've probably got a couple more questions uh if you want to ask them to me now. I'm very happy to answer them. I've got some other thinking. So I know that people listening might be thinking, well, you know, are these are these ideas just for big corporates or, or can it apply to you know other organizations as well? And I would say, I, don't, I think this is more of a case of, I think there's a much more profound movement at heart here. I think you'll have sort of large corporates that want to be the early adopters and really push forwards. But I think you'll also equally have some laggards in that group. And I think equally you'll have some startups that will be very progressive. 
So I think what we'll see is really this sort of combination, irrespective of size, of people really pushing the boundaries as to what's possible. Uh, having you know been keeping an eye on this for a long, long time, I think that there does need to be a happy medium struck. I don't think, uh, from my my own personal perspective, you know, DWG we've worked remotely for ever since I've been part of the business for seven years, and I, you might correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we closed our offices in in London and New York about ten years ago. And what I have missed you know, as a result of COVID is the member meetings that we have that, that used to be in person that allowed me to travel around the world and, and spend time with our clients and, and also with my with my team members from DWG. And I think that is, you know, quite, uh, that was probably one of the hardest sacrifices for me. I, don't, I can't remember the last time I met you in person, Nancy, and I'm very much looking forward to seeing you in October when you come over. So I do think, you know, we do need to strike strike a balance with some of these things. And I think there is a lot of value in, in sort of people still seeing people in person. I'm, I'm definitely not advocating that we all start remote working 100% of the time. And so I think the next two years will really be quite a sort of experimental period in time where organisations and enterprises sort of work through, you know, different ideas and approaches as to how they can really sort of fulfil this desire for hybrid working. And for some people, it, it probably won't work as well as others. Uh, and that's just the reality of people having different jobs and, and working in different sectors with you know, different uh, regulatory obligations as well to throw into the mix. Yeah, I think this idea that organizations are going to need to be able to fail fast and move on will need to rebirth anew. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been very experimental periods in, in the history of uh, big corporates and small alike. Um, but but the idea of being able to take lessons learned and adapt and, and keep moving is, is certainly an important part of this new paradigm uh, because there, there are so many new um, and quickly evolving things. So where, you know, you could do full scale risk analysis and mitigation plans and, and all the rest, that's not always going to be possible. And relying on the best information you have to make thoughtful decisions is becoming part of what we need in our response systems. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, Ed, we need a grounding point here, and that is you've gone through this list of ideas around how ways of working um, are likely to evolve. And given that our audience is largely comprised of digital workplace leaders and practitioners, I think it would be important to help them envision how to put these ideas to immediate use. Any thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing I would say is that the the sort of digital workplace practitioners should be congratulated on their efforts so far. You know, we we get to sort of get insights into lots of different organisations. And I think what I've seen is that those practitioners have put in a huge amount of work over the last 18 months and, and supported thousands of people in helping them to do their jobs. What I can see is that they're definitely going to be playing an an ever more important role in helping to shape the future of work. And I think from sort of an immediate perspective, it's about trying to drive that maturity in their digital workplace programs. And what we've certainly seen, there's significant investments from from many organisations in in making improvements uh, to those digital workplace experiences. So I think there's an excellent opportunity 
for digital workplace practitioners to, to really drive forward the agenda and start working with more of their partners from other parts of the organization. You know, obviously, they've probably got long-standing relationships with IT, but we're certainly seeing uh, much more in, closer interactions with HR. I think your points around uh, looking at how we go about supporting people and having sort of a closer awareness around well-being and mental health and things of that nature is potential an, an area where digital workplace can sort of start to move into as well. So I think for me, it's all about uh, taking advantage of that opportunity and, and really helping to establish uh, you know, high-performing digital workplaces that allow people to work to their full potential. I think that's well said, Ed. And um, just as I look at this space, I think the role of the digital workplace leader and practitioner is changing very rapidly. Whereas the primary focus once upon a time was about managing a portfolio of tools and capabilities. It's much more about thinking about the employee experience and all of its components where digital is an enabler but it needs to fit into the context of a wider workplace experience. And so I think digital workplace leaders and teams are really emerging as change makers inside of organizations. I couldn't agree more. Uh, And I think that's a really important role for them to be able to articulate to other leaders within inside their organization, what might be possible for them. Uh, Because I think, you know, by the very nature, digital workplaces are quite uh, insular tools and services. So trying to sort of showcase what other organizations are doing is a very important one. And digital workplace practitioners can uh, can play a big role in doing that. And uh, we should probably plug DWG membership uh, as an excellent channel to sort of achieving that uh, and sort of getting those insights from other organizations. Uh, but I do think you're right. You know, that role of them being change makers is, uh, is hugely important. And I think, you know, they're going to play a much bigger role over the next few years as, as we all get to grips with, with hybrid working and, and hopefully adopting some of these slightly more sort of crazy ideas that, we, that I've talked about. Hopefully they're not crazy in a few years' time and, and sort of allow people to have, you know, a much better work-life balance. Agreed. Another pull out for digital workplace leaders and practitioners as we start to wrap up our time together. And that would be in light of everything that you see coming uh, based on your look into the crystal ball today, what's your best advice for this audience? Well, I think you, I think you summed it up very well just a moment ago by saying, you know, these leaders need to have sort of an approach of sort of being prepared to fail fast. I think, you know, from a lot of the interactions that we've had with senior leaders, a lot of them were sort of discussing how do we create policies and structures to manage the sort of move to hybrid working within their organisation. So in sort of helping to achieve that, I would definitely say you need to keep an open mind about how your employees want to work with inside your enterprise. You need to listen to their needs and, and really maintain an open dialogue with all of those different user groups. And I, I recall that, I can't remember where I heard it, it was definitely in one of our, our member meetings. I think it's one of the executive sessions that we ran, but there was a real desire to establish you know, a parity of experience for everybody with inside the enterprise. 
And so I think that's a really important sort of area for them to really focus on is how can we ensure that we deliver an experience that's as effective for the CEO at the top of the organization to everybody else right the way across the business. Uh, and I think this will really help organizations develop digital workplaces that will allow their, their employees to be as effective as possible. It will be an enormous challenge. Uh, and I've always been very impressed with organizations who are able to demonstrate you know, high levels of maturity in their digital workplaces because the programs to actually implement these services are very challenging. You know, you're working with every part of the organization is effectively a customer of yours and uh, you have to work with a variety of functions inside the business to do a good job. Uh, so they are going to be challenging. And I think the, the, the added pressure, the, the desire to move to hybrid working as quickly as possible, you know, makes it a really interesting situation to be in for these leaders. So I wish them all the best. Uh, and I definitely uh, hope that they you know, work with their end users to create the right experiences. And I think the other thing that I would add to the mix is, you know, just to think about the, the importance of governance. What we know from the last year is that many organizations were operating in almost a war room mentality yeah. because of the urgency of need to pivot. And we've been coming back to some fundamentals with members and clients to think about the ongoing systems that need to be in place to ensure that you know, you, you can have a firm foundation for decision making, for reviewing performance and impact, and then creating that um, agile set of thinking to uh, stay ahead of um, what's needed next. And so I want to make sure that as people are looking to the future, they, they don't forget the focus on the fundamentals, both employee experience, as you've described it, as well as ongoing governance, because um, these digital workplace teams are working laterally more than ever across not only their their business constituencies, but all the corporate groups that need to work hand in glove across phys physical and digital mm -hmm. and whatever other layers need to uh, come into play as this space shifts around once again. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to pause there, Ed, and just ask if you've got any final reflections as we wrap up our time together. Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, I, I, I think we're, as I sort of mentioned earlier, you know, we're, I think we're at a profound sort of point in history, really. You know, COVID's had a huge impact across the world. And there was a period in time, you know, where every conversation I was having would probably have at least 10 or 15 minutes dedicated to the COVID situation within that particular person's geography, be it, you know, people that I've spoken to in the States, in far away as New Zealand, in Asia, you know, everyone's been faced with the same set of problems. Uh, and fortunately, in the main, have, have sort of come through those challenges uh, okay. But I think for me, it's about really thinking about where we, where are we going to be in the next four or five years' time? And I think that's really exciting because there's a huge amount of change as we start to see you know, new technologies uh, come forward and start to emerge that sort of allow us to have better sort of uh, digital experiences and, and sort of organizations sort of get to grips with those. So I think we're, we're on the cusp of sort of a new, a new sort of era of, uh, of sort of working. Uh, and certainly COVID has, has, has been the trigger to sort of accelerate a lot of that. 
Uh, so I'm very much looking forward to the next sort of five years or so as, as everyone tries to sort of uh, understand how to move forward. And, you know, I'm thinking about the fact that, you know, we have our Digital Workplace of the Year awards that are in flight and it will give us, you know, an early window into that next stage thinking as well as good practice. And I can easily see that um, uh, those awards will need to evolve as our space is evolving as well so that we can celebrate the right accomplishments as this space continues to mature. Well, Ed, this has been a fantastic conversation. I think uh, those who will be attending Unite in, uh, in the next couple of weeks will have an exciting set of insights to explore with you at an even deeper level. Um, but it's been wonderful bringing you into the studio for the first time, and we'll have to do this again. <laughs> Absolute pleasure, Nancy. Always lovely to catch up with you. And uh, yeah, very happy to join the podcast. I certainly would uh, wouldn't need much encouragement to consider how I could work, you know, parts of January, for example, in a ski resort. That could be quite fun. Digital Workplace Impact is brought to you by the Digital Workplace Group. DWG is a strategic partner covering all aspects of the evolving digital workplace industry, not only through membership, but also benchmarking and boutique consulting services. For more information, visit digitalworkplacegroup.com.